All right. Well, welcome to the Ask JP podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be meeting with uh, a good friend of mine, Derwin Button, who is the chief uh, of the Orleans Parish Public Defenders. Uh, Derwin, for the last 11 years, has been that chief public defender. He graduated from New York University Law School in 1998. After law school, Derwin moved to New Orleans to join the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana to fight juvenile mass incarceration, reducing that juvenile incarcerated count from 2,000 children to less than 350 and closing two prisons. Durham was the executive director of Juvenile Regional Services, now the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. LCCR was the first standalone juvenile defender office in the nation and the first nonprofit law office devoted to juvenile justice reform and frontline juvenile representation. As the first black chief public defender for New Orleans, Derwin earned national acclaim and awards for success in reforming public defense in New Orleans. Most recently, Chief Defender Derwin Button helped pass an ordinance with the city council to close the funding gap between the district attorney's office and OPD, making our criminal legal system fairer. Uh, thank you for being here, Derwin. I'm so excited to have you here today and to talk about CJR. Thank you, and thanks for having me on. Well, as before we got started here today, Derwin and I were chatting, we we're talking about how difficult it is to campaign in a time of COVID. And obviously we're going to dig into that a little deeper at the end, but I really appreciate you being the first person to come on this podcast, talk about CJR directly to voters so they can really hear kind of the exciting things that are happening. Because I think that people get so overwhelmed with the national debate and what's going on on a national level, they don't really realize how far the bar and the needle are moving locally. Why don't you talk about that for a second before we get into this? Well, sure. Um, I, th I think, and you've been a part of this for a long time uh, as well. Uh, we in, in New Orleans in particular, Louisiana generally, we've been moving on criminal legal system reform now for at least, at least 15 years, right? Um, and probably the seeds were planted uh, much earlier, but we hear the, the sort of good news has been that uh, we've been able to see reductions in our jail populations, both adult and children. We've been able to see easing and allowing for more second chances for some of our folks who are, who are locked up for long periods of time but are now getting a second look and second chance because of what they've done, the lives they've made for themselves while they've been incarcerated. And, and you've been spearheading things like uh, getting sentences down on, uh, on marijuana, small amounts of marijuana being possessed, uh, folks going to jail for long periods of time. Uh, over, over that, we've been able to change. And having a most recently, of course, the parity ordinance in New Orleans and New Orleans has been the epicenter of reform for the state of Louisiana. So there's a lot, there's a lot of work to do. Let's let's not be uh, let's not be too Pollyanna-ish, but um, we have we have done a lot of work and should be proud of that work we've done. Okay, well let's let's hop right into it. So I think everyone who knows you kind of has an idea of what your philosophy is as public defender, but I guess the, the question would be, how does that translate into what your judicial philosophy will be as a judge? Well, for me, I think what voters need to know is, is past is prologue. I've dedicated my life to pursuing fairness, justice, and equity. That's not going to change on the bench. And I want to provide 
uh, I want to go with a, with a mindset, a, a different uh, perspective to deliver fair justice for New Orleanians. So I want to go thinking about innovation. How do we do better, take better advantage of technology, data, use information to, to make decisions, and also to share and show our work to our community. I want to be able to do that, maybe use that technology to create calendars that make sense so that folks uh, can get to court on time and get to court at a, get out of court at a reasonable time so they can get back to their families and their jobs. Uh, I want to hold folks accountable in power uh, and people um, so that folks don't get a pass for um, you know fake subpoenas or or anything else that jumps up in our system. I want to be a judge that when they see something, they say something and I've done that my entire career. And I reform things. I tried to, I, I, you know, got in with juvenile justice work and did that, got in with the public defender's office and did that. I want to look at ways to make our uh, judiciary better, more responsive, fairer, and more equitable. So I'm, I'm excited to, um, to get in the race and try and do some of those things. Okay. And I mean, in light of that, what is kind of your thoughts on the current system and maybe like really kind of emphasize on what you see at criminal district court as what are some of the inefficient or frustrating things as someone who is who works there that you think judges could really change. Well, I think one big thing that's that's sort of just nuts and bolts frustrating is uh, there's two things. And I, I already talked about technology and how we how we create and and provide access to the public for court calendars, as an example. Uh, being able to schedule folks in a way that makes sense and takes everybody into consideration. We have not embraced technology to the extent we, we need to. Uh, but also jury service. I think folks dread jury service. And one of the reasons is all the, the stories that go out about what happens if you get picked for a jury in New Orleans. And if you get picked for a jury in New Orleans and, and there's a trial, you could end up um, at, at criminal district court, Tulane and Broad at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And that's just not a way to treat people. This is a civic duty, a civic job. We should treat it as a job. Uh, and that job means nine to five. If we can't reach a verdict from nine to five, we'll go home. Uh, then we'll come back. Uh, at nine and try it again, like everybody else on a traditional job. Um, and then uh, I think if we treat jurors with, um, with the respect that, that they deserve in coming and doing their job, their civic job, I think that would make folks less afraid of being picked for juries. And we need that diversity to remain in our jury pool. We can't be scaring folks away because that's the community's voice in our criminal legal system. And that's, that's something that's very concerning and, and uh, uh, important for a lot of us. Well, and I mean, that, that, just to comment on that for it leads, it leads directly into our next question, but it's a real basic idea. You want to treat jurors as adults and you rely upon the fact that jurors take being, being on a jury seriously. The argument you'll hear from prosecutors all the time is we send them home, they'll talk to their family, they'll get influenced. Well, if someone met all of the ridiculous criteria to stay on the jury. They weren't flagged. They weren't struck, whatever. You have to have a basic assumption that they're going to take being a juror seriously. They're going to go home. They're not going to talk about the trial. If you shouldn't talk to the trial about, they're going to come back and do their work. But 
leading directly into treating people like adults, let's talk about the cash bail system. Obviously, it's a central pillar of kind of the criminal justice reform kind of debate right now. And what do you feel like as a judge you could do to either change, maintain, modify? What are your thoughts on cash bail? Well, I think my, my thoughts on cash bail is, is that, one, there shouldn't be any amount of money that lets anyone dangerous out of jail. Uh, if someone's dangerous, it's the danger that keeps them there, not the money. Second, no one should be kept in jail because they're too poor to afford their freedom. Uh, and so I don't, I, I think that cash bail, as it's been used and as we have it, is sort of wrong-headed. And we shouldn't be using money as a condition for freedom. And one of the things that judges can do, of course, is we set bonds and we review bonds. Um, outside, once it gets past the magistrate, it's going to end up in a section. And in my section, I, I can review bonds more vigorously and more often to see if this is a bond, that, if someone's in jail simply because they're too poor or because our community is, is sort of afraid. Uh, and I think most of the time, most of the time, it's, it's, the, it's because they just don't have enough money. If somebody's in jail on a $1,000 bond, that $1,000 bond is not a high bond. That means that person, that means the magistrate or commissioner, whoever set that bond, thought they might be able to make it, <laughs> but they can't because they're too poor. And once it hits a section, you can reduce that bond um, and, and try to get those folks out to their families and friends, loved ones, to fight their, their case uh, from their community. And that's the best way for people to help their lawyers in those instances. But it's also, I think, just the law. The law is designed to, to make sure you're not a flight risk, that you show up to your, uh, to your, um, uh, your settings, uh, and you're not a danger. And I think that's where we got to get back to and not and stop using money like it keeps us keeps us safe because it doesn't. Right. I mean, I think sometimes people forget oftentimes that and you really hit the nail on the head. There's there's like three pillars to when you're setting bond. The first and foremost is, are you a flight risk? And I mean, the reality is, is that when you look at bonds and you look at law and order on television, they set the high bonds for the guy who's a millionaire who could skip the country. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you want to have a high enough bond that someone has a financial risk. So they'll show up and it should not just be that every single person who comes in automatically has a cash bond necessarily just because they were arrested and they were charged with something. The other issue is, and I think really this is kind of the point where the rubber heats the road as far as practice. You have to give someone a bomb because they're constitutionally entitled to it, but obviously it's up to judges to make the determination. The safety issue is obviously a big one, but that should be done on a case by case basis. And like you said, if you give a magistrate, I used to be a magistrate public defender. If you're there on a, on a weed charge, first offense, you got caught with a joint. You don't have to get a $500 bond. You could get an ROR. And that's really something that judges probably need to flex more on and say, listen, you're someone who has no priors. It's a minor offense. That weed head's not going to come rob you for their, for, their, for their next joint. 
maybe we should ROR that person on that same token. If you've got someone with means who's wealthy, who's being his wife, being his kids, that's somebody who you might have to weigh in on is a cash bond, is a cash bond appropriate? And are they a danger to their wife and to their community? And people don't forget, people forget sometimes cash aside, there are other conditions you could put on a bond, like stay away orders. Uh, I know because some legislation we passed, you could take away guns. There are other things you can do in lieu of cash. You can even do drug tests, for example, if someone's got a huge drug problem that you could do in addition or in lieu of a cash bond that still keep somebody on the track to come back to trial and not be a danger, but doesn't necessarily keep them in jail just because they're poor. No, and, that, and that's exactly right. I, I think that we, like I said, money doesn't keep us safe. Right. And, and, and for me, if you're if you're going upside somebody's head or willing to go upside somebody's head, then there's there's just no bond that you should have. You shouldn't be able to get back out and do that. Um, but if it's it's simply a matter of of jail is a devastating uh pill to give folks. It is strong medicine, whether it's an hour or it's three days. And so, and it's expensive uh, for us as taxpayers, right? So we need to reserve that for, for cases where community is at risk or they might, they might run off um, from, from, you know, being held responsible for whatever they're being brought in for. And we just don't need money bail to do any of that. So uh, I, it's absolutely right. Judges have a lot to say about it. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna run through some of these other ones because you and I are enjoying talking together too much. So I think we're kind of <laughs> destroying any idea I had on time limits. But what is your position on mandatory minimums? Uh, I don't I don't um, like mandatory minimums, uh, but as a judge, right? It's it's the law of the land for certain for certain offenses and if they're proven up. Um, but I do believe that that folks have or should have an opportunity, they may never take advantage of it, should have the opportunity to show uh, improvement, um, you know, remake, rehabilitate themselves. And what mandatory minimums do is take away not just a judge's discretion, but the community's discretion to be heard in, in the lives of their, their community members who are being taken away and put in jail or put in prison. And, and, some, of, and some of the mandatory minimums we need, to, um, we need to review because those are relics. They are part of a politics of the past uh, where folks believe judges were letting everybody go. I don't think that was ever a narrative in Louisiana um, but I, I think it became a more, uh, a way of showing your sort of political strength as opposed to really keeping communities safe. So I'd give some of that discretion back to our courts and by extension, some of that, uh, discretion back to our communities to determine, uh, when somebody should get out. Okay. And, uh, what about your position on the death penalty? Uh, I am not, I do not believe in the death penalty, but um, I take my, my philosophy on this 
from an, an old federal judge who has, has since passed away, Napoleon Jones, who was a federal judge in the Southern District of California. Uh, he was a Clinton appointee um, and presided over death penalty cases, but didn't believe in the death penalty. And, but what he said was, you know, the community makes these rules and I enforce them. And so as long as it's the law of the land, you got to follow the law of the land. Uh, but no, not a, not a, I don't think it deters crime. I don't think, um, I don't think it uh, is applied evenly or equitably. Um, at the same time, if a death penalty case comes before me, I'd have to act uh, absolutely appropriately according to the law as a judge. Okay. And speaking of that, so obviously, uh, especially in the last four years, judicial activism has become kind of a byline where people feel like judges for good or for ill have the ability to kind of interpret the law to kind of push an agenda one way or the other. What is your position on judicial activism? Do you think judges should be constrained by case law as far as saying, well, I'd like to rule this way, but the case law says it's X, so I'm going to go with X? Or do you believe that judges should have the freedom to, when they look at a case, interpret the law, first glance, say, this is the law, I'm going to ignore the case law. This is the law, and I'm going to interpret the law the way I think it should be interpreted. Well, I think when folks start talking about judicial activism, you're generally, you got to be careful because there's, uh, I believe, uh, a judge is a leader in the law and leaders in the law are active. We read, we learn, uh, we apply what we read and what we learn. Uh, and so I, I, I really don't buy so much into the term judicial activist or activism, uh, but we, I don't think we should shy from being judicial leaders. Some things are pretty, pretty simple in the law and you follow them. Others give room. Take, for example, deviating from uh, mandatory minimums. We have uh, the Dorothy case that allows you to deviate when the, the sentence is excessive, constitutionally excessive. Uh, and a judge makes that determination after applying the law and the facts. That's just leadership. That's not activism. So I, I plan to be as much a leader on the bench as I have been in my career trying to get to the bench and taking, you know, long, hard looks at the law, applying the facts and, and, and the constitutions, both state and federal, and making sure that, that our rulings are fair, equitable, um, and just. Um, and uh, I, hope that, I hope that earns me the label judicial leader as opposed to judicial activist. Okay. I think that's a fair answer. Do you consider yourself a reform candidate? And if so, why? Um, I do. Um, and part of it is my history. Uh, I've worked, uh, I've had the pleasure of working with folks like you, uh, working with organizations like the Innocence Project and working at the Orleans Public Defender's Office, of course, first and foremost. In, in making changes, making our system fairer, more equitable and more just. It's, it's what I've done my entire career and it's what I've dedicated my life to. 
Uh, and so I'm not going to do anything different on the bench. So when it comes to um, looking at, at the law and pushing changes that are going to improve the administration of our criminal legal system, uh, I'm, I'm going to work and do that. So, so yeah, that's, um, that's kind of an easy one for me. And, and if I said I wasn't, I, th- I think folks would think I was being disingenuous. <laughs> that's probably fair, Derwin. Um, how's campaigning during COVID? I know we talked a little about this offline about how, how different it is, but I think it's important for voters to hear kind of what it's like in this process. Because for someone who's campaigned not during COVID, I can't imagine what it's like. Man, it's tough. Uh, it's tough because I'm actually someone who likes to uh, engage with people. I think uh, I've, I've been able to do a lot of that over the course of my career. Uh, and this makes it very hard. You can't shake hands and kiss babies uh, like uh, politicians. Uh, a baby uh, will give you COVID. <laughs> um and so it becomes, it becomes really difficult. A, a lot of virtual events, a lot of virtual uh, forums, um, and it's actually uh, really uh, expensive because now you're depending on all these vehicles where you used to just depend on a little shoe leather. You're now depending on these platforms and getting out content and crafting these ads. So it's actually a lot more expensive um, than it used to be. And then um, the other piece is this couldn't have come at a worse time because this is a, this is a crowded election cycle. And, and, you, and you're a veteran of this, so you've seen this many times where you just have a lot of folks on the ballot, a lot of things on the ballot, and everybody's fundraising at the same time. So you've got this combination of things are more expensive and you're competing with everyone for fundraising. So it's, it's really difficult, really challenging in this environment to campaign. You, you got out at the right time. I, I feel like it. Uh, okay. This is a little more hard hitting question. Why are you more qualified than your opponent? Keep it clean, but why do you feel like you're more qualified than your opponent? I think it's a fair question. Everyone should be able to answer. Yes. And I think our race, you know, criminal district court section E, our race provides New Orleanians with a clear choice, I think. It is politics of the past versus a vision uh, for progress. My, my opponent is a career prosecutor, um, you know, grew up under Eddie Jordan, Canizero, Uh, graduated law school, went and became a prosecutor in Chicago, came back, was a prosecutor for Jordan and Canizero, and then left that office, became a prosecutor for Paul Connick, and left that office and worked at Homeland Security. So she has a a very clear career path as as a sort of prosecutor law enforcement. I I left law school trying to be more, I, I wanted to be like Steve Bright at the Southern Center for Human Rights. I want to be like Brian Stevenson at EJI, both of whom I've had the pleasure of knowing and and receiving some mentorship from. Uh, I want to be a public interest lawyer and stand proximate um, to folks most affected by our criminal legal system. Uh, And, you know, began my career with a civil rights class action suing the state 
and am now the chief public defender and have been for 11 years with a history of leadership in organizations and in reform. So uh, I have, I, I believe I am the best candidate in this race because of the depth and breadth of my experience and my successful record for reform uh, and leadership. And by the way, I was a lawyer for 22 years. I've been a lawyer for 22 years, um, represented some, some very you know, difficult cases, school shooting at Woodson Middle School. That was my case. Um, represented one of the Gina Six, Theo Shaw, uh, who is now uh, a, a lawyer and in a fellowship program at Georgetown Law School. So uh, I've handled all sorts of cases all over the state, but I've also been able to be a leader in reform. And, and I think that's the choice. It's going to be a career sort of uh, prosecutor who's picked up files and and you know pushed those cases or a, a leader and reformer uh, I think that I don't think it could be clear in any other race okay is there anything else you'd like to add as you know it's this is this is this is a earned media so you don't have to pay for this so if you have some stuff you want to throw out there right now <laughs> I'm not charging you for it so if you want to they feel like there are issues and things about you the voters need to know that we haven't covered now's your chance to plug it well, one, thank you for allowing me to be on, on the program. Uh, we, we have been trying unsuccessfully to talk. I think originally I was trying to see if you could talk me out of this um, and, then, uh, and then later getting some advice on how to succeed at it. So thank right. you for letting me be on the, be on the show. Uh, and I, I don't have a whole lot more to say to New Orleanians. I've been here uh, I came here in 1998, been a lawyer here for 22 years. Uh, I am one of five children um, raised by a single mom who grew up in East Texas and ran to California to escape the Jim Crow South. Um, uh, one thing, my campaign team, uh, uh, I sneak in. I was the first black homecoming king at San Diego State University. Um, First black homecoming king in its hundred year history at that point. Uh, so I sneak that in whenever I can, but, but <laughs> it irks my wife uh, and makes my uh, campaign team smile. But I, New Orleanians need to know I've been here for the long haul. Got two beautiful girls, married, house, uh, big dog. Um, and uh, I love New Orleans. And I think New Orleans deserves the kind of leadership that I represent on the bench. Okay. Well, also, I'm going to help you out here. What's your Twitter and your website? Because you also got to plug that too. It's all true. Uh, Twitter is Bunton for Judge at Bunton for Judge. Um, also, my personal Twitter is uh, D Bunton at D Bunton 44. And you can learn more uh, on how to support the campaign by going to uh, DerwinBunton.com. Uh, DerwinBunton's all one word.com. Uh, and learn more about me and, and how to support the campaign. And of course, I would appreciate everyone's support and vote on November 3rd and during early voting. It's uh, uh, number 89 on your ballot, Derwin Button for Criminal District Court, Section E. All right. Well, I think we've covered everything. Thank you so much for being my first guest on this new Zoom format. Uh, it's been a pleasure interviewing you. I look forward to seeing you on, well, I look forward to watching from afar while you're on the campaign trail. I'm not coming within six, 12 feet of you. Just putting that out there. 
That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> All right. right. Thanks, Derwin. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.